We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Henry Morgenthau, Roosevelt's Secretary of the Treasury, steered by the communist agent Harry Dexter White, had done as much as anyone to bring about the war in the Pacific. Now he was manoeuvring to have Germany dismembered, mainly for the benefit of his boss, Joseph Stalin. He was also hoping to bring about the deaths of 30 million Germans by starvation and the mass shootings without trial or any other legal process of upwards of 100,000 German officers. Well, on the bright side, they wouldn't starve. That dinner the night before that Morgenthau had with the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, and with Communist Asset and Senior Staff Member of the Department of Treasury, Harry Dexter White, had left a bitter taste in Morgenthau's mouth. Stimson didn't share his enthusiasm for giving the Germans what they had coming to them. When he was in his office the next day, Morgenthau complained to his staff, Stimson is opposed to making Germany a barren farm country, out of misplaced kindness and Christianity. The slow march of the left through the institutions is a lot slower and has been going on a lot longer than most of us have thought. Roosevelt's administration was riddled with communist spies and those useful idiots, as Lenin called them, fellow travellers. One of the most important of the fellow travellers in Roosevelt's administration was his lifelong friend, Harry Hopkins. Since I have one Harry on the go, communist asset Harry Dexter White, I'll call Harry Hopkins Hopkins, so you hopefully don't get confused. Hopkins lived in the White House and had enormous influence over Roosevelt. He was also a fellow traveller of the communists. He made some of the most damaging decisions to the interests of the United States that have possibly ever been made, with impacts that the United States is still suffering from to this day. So in his struggle to get Roosevelt to back the Morgenthau plan and not be talked out of it by Stimson, Morgenthau now called on the most powerful ally, Hopkins, that a man could hope to have in the White House. Hopkins agreed that Stimson was a man that came from that school that believed that property was sacred, one of those fellows that are afraid of communist Russia, like anyone who knew anything about the mass murders of the Kulaks and the Great Terror rightly was. Morgenthau had all of the best cards on his side. Personally, he was a major donor to the Democratic Party. He lived 32 kilometres from Roosevelt's Hyde Park Weekender property in Upper New York State. He met up with Roosevelt over the weekend of 2 and 3 September 1944. Roosevelt basically agreed with what Morgenthau wanted to do. He had a few additions that he wanted added, which were... The new clauses were Clause 10... It prohibited Germans from wearing uniforms. Clause 11 prohibited marching. Clause 12 prohibited Germany having any aircraft, even a glider, which had been the loophole that had allowed Germany to build up pilots for when the Treaty of Versailles was put aside by Hitler so that his air force, the Luftwaffe, 
was pretty much ready to go. Morgenthau got Roosevelt to agree that the Ruhr would be dismantled and the machinery given to those countries that might need it, by which he meant, but discreetly refrained from saying, the USSR. To make sure that he was open in getting Roosevelt's agreement to this, he shared the Treasury Department's estimate that this would put 18 to 20 million Germans out of work. That didn't bother Roosevelt, even though the reason he had first become President of the United States was to overcome the humanitarian crisis of the mass unemployment in the United States caused by the Great Depression that had begun in 1929. After that meeting between Roosevelt and Morgenthau at Roosevelt's country retreat, it was settled that the Morgenthau plan was now the official policy that the US wanted implemented in Germany after the war. Now, Churchill had to be sold on the idea, and that wasn't going to be an easy sell. Roosevelt knew he couldn't sell this idea on his own. It was, after all, the love child of Henry Morgenthau and the communist agent Harry Dexter White. The next meeting between Roosevelt and Churchill was scheduled for Quebec, Canada, between 11 and 16 September 1944. Roosevelt, at short notice, invited Henry Morgenthau along, together with Harry. Henry Stimson was not invited, nor was the Secretary of State Cordell Hull, both of whom would have sided with Churchill, causing the Morgenthau plan to fail. Henry Morgenthau hadn't attended any of the earlier Big Two or Big Three conferences. How would Morgenthau go in his encounter with a Churchill who was on top of his form? During dinner on that first night with the Churchill on top of his form present, Morgenthau addressed the dinner about his plan. Morgenthau finished his address and he recorded that Winston Churchill turned loose on me with the full blood of his rhetoric, sarcasm and violence. Churchill looked on the treasury plan, he said, as he would on chaining himself to a dead German. The Morgenthau plan, Churchill objected, was unnatural, unchristian and unnecessary, and I'm all for disarming Germany, but we ought not to prevent her living decently. There are bonds between the working classes of all countries, and the English people will not stand for the policy you are advocating. The next day, Churchill got a lesson in what it meant now to be a less-than-vital partner in the coalition to defeat Germany. Roosevelt knew that England could be pushed around. England was solid and consistent in its views, immovably wedded to the defeat of Nazi Germany above everything else. England had opposed and fought Hitler when all common sense said that it should have come to the least humiliating peace it had been able to manage with Herr Hitler. Instead, it fought on at great cost to itself, in lives lost, in property damaged, in the debt that it incurred with the United States for the Lend-Lease aid, which it didn't finally repay until 2006. It was going to continue to fight Hitler until he was beaten. Roosevelt knew that he could count on that. Stalin, on the other hand, could and would, at the drop of a hat, have switched sides and allied himself with Germany, if the right deal was offered. Stalin had murdered more of his own people than the Nazis had managed to do in all of Europe and in their full-blooded war on Russia and its people. The USSR never repaid a penny of the aid that it received from America, which dwarfed what England had received. Effectively, right until Germany's surrender, it was impossible for America and England to turn off anything to Russia without risking dire consequences. Russia and Germany united were seriously capable of throwing America and England back out of the continent even as late as the first months of 1945. Stalin was purely motivated by self-interest and what his people had paid in blood 
in the war against Germany didn't count for a fig. And now America exercised the leverage that it could only exercise against England, America's decent, loyal and fair-minded ally. The day after that dinner confrontation between Morgenthau and Churchill, Morgenthau, with Roosevelt's blessing, now threatened to withdraw the entire Lend-Lease funds, two-thirds of a trillion dollars in today's term, that America was going to provide England for its post-war recovery, what was called Phase 2 Lend-Lease, unless Churchill accepted the Morgenthau plan. Churchill said to Morgenthau, according to Harry White's recollection, Oh, what do you want me to do? Beg? Like Feller? Feller was Roosevelt's dog. The only concession that Churchill was able to get the Americans to agree to was to allow him to reword the plan in words that Churchill said were more elegant and less cruel-sounding. The Churchill reworded version was signed on 15 September 1944. The plan as it stood when signed by Roosevelt and Churchill not only provided for the elimination of the war-making industries in the Ruhr and the Saar, but also provided for eradicating the metallurgical, chemical and electrical industries in all of Germany. The reason for this addition became clear in a passage probably put in at Harry's insistence, which cited that the Germans have devastated a large portion of the industries of Russia and other neighbouring allies, and it is only in accordance with justice that these injured countries should be entitled to remove the machinery they require in order to repair the losses they have suffered. Anthony Eden, British Secretary of State for War, when he heard about Churchill signing the Morgenthau Plan, objected violently to Churchill's signing up to it. Churchill tried defending the indefensible, without telling Eden that he'd been blackmailed by his friend and ally. Churchill felt terribly betrayed. He had always believed that he and Roosevelt and England and America enjoyed a special relationship. But he wasn't convincing to what was undoubtedly a puzzled Anthony Eden. He got as close as he could to revealing why he had agreed to this monstrous plan when he told Eden, When I have to choose between my people and the German people, I am going to choose my people Roosevelt had totally endorsed the Stalin-friendly legal principle that the victors could loot German industrial assets for restitution or reparation. Morgenthau noted that during these discussions at one time that Churchill was quite emotional and at one time had tears in his eyes. Churchill had betrayed many of the principles that he believed in. Roosevelt now returned to the United States and to a furious Secretary of State Cordell Hull. When Roosevelt got back to Washington and it was known that the Morgenthau Plan had been signed up as official Anglo-American policy, Cordell Hull told Roosevelt to his face that the Treasury program to wipe out everything in Germany except land meant that as only 60% of the German people could support themselves on German land, the other 40% would die. That was as many as 30 million Germans would die of starvation because of this plan. Hull pointed out to Roosevelt that there were strategic implications too that posed grave risks for Allied soldiers. He said, If the Morgenthau plan leaked out, as it inevitably would, it might well mean a bitter end German resistance that could cause the loss of thousands of American lives. Hull was so distressed at this outrageous Stalinistic program that he lost his appetite and had trouble sleeping. On 2 October 1944, his 73rd birthday, Hull left his office and never returned. 
Officially, it was because of ill health, but he told Arthur Croc, a New York Times columnist at the time, that he had left because of the Morgenthau business. Stimson was as distressed, he told Hull before he stepped down, that the plan violated the Atlantic Charter of 14 August 1941, in that charter pursuing the high Christian moral standards that had always inspired the United States and Britain, Roosevelt and Churchill, on behalf of their nations, had promised to endeavour to further the enjoyment of all states, victor and vanquished, great and small, of access on equal terms to the trade and raw materials of the world which are needed for their economic prosperity. Stimson also objected to another clause under which so-called arch-criminals shall be put to death by the military without provision for any trial and upon mere identification after apprehension. Stimson shared that clause with the usually docile U.S. Army Chief of Staff, General George Marshall. Marshall told the President that he was aghast at the notion that we should not give these men a fair trial. Leaks to the press from inside government aren't new. This story leaked like a sieve and from all sides. The first leak came from Morgenthau and Harry. It appeared in Drew Pearson's Washington merry-go-round and reported on the Army's plan to help Germany get reintegrated into the world. The motive of releasing information about the Morgenthau plan is hard to figure. It seems most likely that Harry would have leaked it. Harry's purpose seems to have been to get out in the public arena that the Morgenthau plan was official US policy. That fed into Stalin's propaganda in a variety of ways that were all bad for the Americans and English. The whole Morgenthau plan was, in every imaginable way, a disaster for England and America. Stimson, in reply to the Morgenthau-Harry leak, himself leaked news of cabinet dissent over the Morgenthau plan to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Livid over the leaks, Roosevelt issued a misleading statement to the press on 29 September, insisting that post-war occupation policy on Germany had not yet been settled. This was not the first time that a politician had lied. A storm blew up over the outrageous detail shown in the plan and Roosevelt tried to play dumb with Secretary of War Stimson until Stimson showed him his and Churchill's signature on the document. The upcoming presidential elections, which would give Roosevelt his record-breaking fourth term as president if he won, impossible today because after Roosevelt, the law changed to limit a president to no more than two terms in office. And they were coming up those elections. Roosevelt now realised that the Morgenthau plan could rob him of victory in that election. The plan was dropped and a revised, much harsher version of the original army proposal known as the Handbook for Military Government in Germany, but nowhere nearly as harsh as the Morgenthau Plan, was adopted by America and England in September 1944. It still provided for no economic rehabilitation of Germany by the United States after the war. The leadership of the Third Reich, always on the lookout for something that would bolster the continuation of public support for the Nazi regime, got a massive shot in the arm from the news of the Morgenthau Plan. Goebbels disclosed on Berlin Radio that the plan proposed by that Jew Morgenthau, which would rob 80 million Germans of their industry and turn Germany into a simple potato field. 
Up until early September 1944, it had looked as if the Germans were giving up the fight against the Americans and the British. But things totally changed from October 1944 after the Morgenthau Plan became known in Germany. The military intelligence was now reporting that the Morgenthau Plan had inspired a marked stiffening of German resistance. Lieutenant Colonel Marshall Knappen, chief of the U.S. Army's Religious Affairs Section, wrote after interviewing American soldiers that weary men returning from the field reported the Germans fought with twice their previous determination after the announcement of the Morgenthau Plan. Roosevelt's intelligence chief, Wild Bill Donovan, informed the Joint Chiefs of Staff in November 1944 that the German spirit of resistance has been bolstered greatly by fear of the consequences of unconditional surrender. The Russians took advantage of the Morgenthau Plan, which was almost certainly leaked to the press by Harry on directions from Moscow, to suggest that at least they would not punish the Germans for the acts of their leadership. Soon after, on 16 December 1944, the Germans threw themselves at the American forces in the Ardennes in a last-ditch effort to try to bring the Americans and the British to the negotiating table. Hitler, in his New Year's Eve radio broadcast to the German people, warned them that the Morgenthau Plan would have the effect of completely ripping apart the German Reich, the uprooting of 15 or 20 million Germans and transport abroad, the enslavement of the rest of our people, the ruination of German youth, but above all, the starvation of our masses. Could not be disputed that the Americans and British military now found their opponent energised to continue the fight to the death. Stalin got the benefit of being able to advance more rapidly through the nations of Eastern Europe and Germany with the bulk of the German forces now being thrown at the Americans and the British. This helped Stalin to secure his claim to the massive chunks of Europe occupied and about to be occupied by the Red Army held at the time that Germany surrendered. It was no coincidence that, just as Berlin Radio was warning German troops that the Americans wanted to destroy German industry and turn their country into a potato field, the German-language Soviet radio transmissions were telling them that Hitler's come and go, but the German people and the German state remain, suggesting disingenuously that Stalin did not plan to punish the German people collectively for Hitler's crime or to break Germany into pieces. In private, the Soviets were pleased with Harry's work in muscling through the Morgenthau Plan, a draft version of which was shared with the NKVD by one of Harry's Soviet sub-agents, Nathan Silvermaster, in October 1944. The Soviet ambassador to Washington, Andrei Gromyko, met with Harry to thank him in person. The Soviet government's own position on the treatment of occupied Germany, Gromyko told Harry, was very close or closer to what is spoken of as the Morgenthau Plan. Soviet diplomatic cynicism over plans for defeated Germany, as on the Warsaw Uprising, was breathtaking. Harry White had helped that master diplomat Stalin pull off another coup that would give enormous advantages to Russia over the coming decades. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Carlsberg slogan for their beer.
If you liked this program, you will definitely love my other program, CYKIAE.